Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Liam Kay, Senior Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Every month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. Today I'm going to be exploring the role charities will come to play post-Brexit. I want to understand how charities have been preparing for Brexit, or not as the case may be, how they'll be affected by ongoing negotiations and what role they might be able to play in healing the country's divides after March 29th. Later, we'll hear from Julia Lynch, founder of the Global Girl Project, about the impact charities can make on International Women's Day. And third sector editor Andy Hillier will be in Essex discovering what unique challenges the local voluntary sector is facing in England's poorest area. But right now, I want to speak to three influential people about the funding, practical and social implications of Brexit for charities. John Tizard is an independent strategic advisor and commentator and chair of NAVCA. Jane Thomas is the Brexit Civil Society Alliance's coordinator. And the Joe Cox Foundation's chief executive is Catherine Anderson. John, Catherine, Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. We'll start with what do you think the biggest impact of Brexit will be on the charity sector? Any particular parts of the sector that you think will be hard hit? I think it's wrong to start from the question, what does it mean for charities in the sector? It's much more significant what it means for the economy, communities and the future of our country. And I think charities should be looking at this from what it means for communities and their beneficiaries rather than what it means for their institutions. And the reality is that any Brexit deal will be worse in terms of our economic prospects and our social prospects than the current arrangements of being a member of the European Union. So from Brexit Civil Society Alliance, I absolutely agree with everything you've just said. I mean, we represent more than just charities. It's trying to have a voice for civil society throughout the whole of the Brexit process and all the various pieces of legislation. I think the biggest alarm bell for us at the moment is a no-deal scenario. And then, even if there is a no-deal about making sure that people are well-equipped and informed enough to be able to make sure both their communities and their organisations have the capacity to respond appropriately. And I think that's a huge worry for us. I'm in danger of agreeing with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. But that's a nice, more in common message, which, of course, the Joe Cox Foundation stands for. I, I totally agree, John. I mean, this is about... What kind of country are we going to become and what what is the implication for that in terms of not just the the global economy, which is going to impact on big aid and big budgets, but also individual giving? You know, are people going to become less generous as a result? There are some people saying that the GDP will will reduce by as much as 5%. There will be less disposable income. There will be less hours to volunteer. What does that mean for a country that has a rich heritage of volunteering and charity? I think that's really worrying. And I think you've picked on something that's really important that's been missing in a lot of this debate is nobody's done the visioning of what sort of society we want to be. The politicians have really not stepped up to the plate on that one but also I think there's been this vacuum of saying so many people have been able to quick to say we don't like this we don't want this we don't want that but nobody's really painted that vision of what it is that we want we to do be. Want. Yeah. In, in fact there were those who painted a very fictitious vision pre-2016 and the referendum so there are expectations that will not be met if there is Brexit whether there's no deal or any deal. 
And it seems to me that we need to be absolutely clear that no deal will be devastating, yes. not only in the short term, but for the long term. Mm. But even a deal is likely to lead to lower growth, more inequality, less money available, not only for giving, but for the government to spend on public services. So we could see potentially austerity plus plus as a consequence. And I suppose, how can charities prepare for Brexit? And, and in particular, the sort of growing threat of a, a no-deal Brexit? I suppose there are two ways, aren't there? One is the, the charity voice needs to be heard loud and clearly in the current political debate. And sadly, it hasn't been. And it hasn't been for a long period of time. If we believe that no deal is going to be disastrous for communities, our beneficiaries, mm. for society, we should be saying so and adding our voice. We also need to scenario plan yeah. for what will be the eventualities and have contingencies for what could be rising poverty, failure of food, lack of medicines and so on, and community division and xenophobia of the kind which we haven't yet seen, sadly. Yeah, there's the practical steps that a charity can take and obviously different charities will be more dependent on EU legislation and there will be very... The devil will be in the detail. But the question is, how does the charity sector communicate effectively with government when government itself is, you know, a box of frogs at the moment? I mean, not only are the parties splitting up, the committees are losing power. All eyes are on Brexit. So paradoxically, you know, the one thing that we need to protect ourselves from is the one thing that's consuming everyone. And I don't really know when so many charities have such different needs, how can we mm. be a unified voice? I think the unified voice is really important. One of the things that we've done very early on is make sure that we reach out into Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And it's the geographical sort of unity isn't there. And I think that that has been a real missing bit as well of this whole Brexit stuff is that it's been very London focused, but it's often seen through an English prism. So if we start to talk about how do you mitigate against the worst impacts and yeah. say in Northern Ireland, it's different from Northern Ireland, from Wales and Scotland. And we do well to remember that, as I know us around the table do, but the politicians certainly don't get that. So from our point of view, sort of making sure that the voices that are heard are from the furthest parts away from London is really important. Mm, mm. And then something that I hope we will come back to is just waking people up to the fact about post-Brexit EU funding, mm, this yeah. massive spectre of the shared prosperity funds. So yeah. we've been doing a yeah. lot of work about sort of saying to people, this is coming down the road, get ready, no way you've got to lobby. And I think the other thing is getting ready for just your EU nationals, the whole sort of um, settled status stuff. That is a real issue, I think, for the sector. And did you see any benefits from Brexit at all? I think there's some interesting conversations. I mean, plague on all your houses and be careful of what you wish for. It's been very enriching for us to do some work in Northern Ireland. And I think in terms of how to do things well, I think, I don't know if you've done any work in Northern Ireland, but the civil society groups there and the charities, because they've had 20 years of fighting and being the voice of representation, especially with Stormont not there and Sinn Féin not sitting in Parliament, I think they've been exemplary mm. in sort of 
how they've mm. been able to work collaboratively, comradely, mm. get things done, and that should continue. Mm. I'm desperately trying to <laughs> struggle for something I else. I think, well, one, one, if you flip it on its head, I mean... A change is coming and, and that's inevitable and, and, you know, I don't think we should reject change just on the grounds of change itself. I mean, I think we, we have to grasp the opportunity and that means being prepared and being ready with initiatives to fill spaces that are going to be left, such as funding streams or, you know, different ways of doing things bureaucratically. And the other opportunity for me really, I think, is, you know, Brexit came about due to very, very complex variables and we're talking decades in the making. This is our opportunity to fix things, you know, and the question really is, once we get over the Brexit hurdle, figuring out why on earth people voted the way they did and really try and fix some of the things that are going badly wrong. I mean, I would agree entirely with that because whether we have Brexit or we don't have Brexit, and I don't think we should make the assumption we will have Brexit. I mean, I think it's still... A question over whether it will actually happen. But there is a huge job to be done to rebuild trust in civil society, trust in the democratic process, but as importantly, to address inequality and that feeling of being marginalised and disadvantaged. Mm. Because when Jane was talking about Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales, and it will be London-centric, it looks very different if you're in Yorkshire or the North East or the North West than it does if you're in London, and it will look different in different parts of London as well. So irrespective of what happens on March the 29th or whenever, we've got to, and I think this is where the charity sector and the civil society has a huge role to play, is actually about rebuilding and refor not rebuilding the old, but actually building a new form of society and community mm. and a more mm. socially based economy as well. Mm. Amen to that. I mean, it's quite interesting, sorry, but we've tried and done, we have done round tables in places that are sort of the most likely and possibly places mm. that voted leave, but are really got pockets of disadvantage and deprivation stuff. So we've been down to the first bits of Cornwall, we've been up into Cumbria, we're going over to Lincoln. And just hearing those conversations, and these are people who know their communities inside out, and in some ways it's how we can continue having those conversations and value that post-Brexit, I think, is, for me, mm. the next step. Because the, sort of, the referendum has highlighted quite significant divides in the country, you know, culturally, geographically, politically. And charities have quite a major role to play in healing those divides and bringing different communities together again. Is that something that you would agree with? I certainly would, but I think it's a wake-up call to charities because many charities working in communities, being part of communities, were recognising the social divisions, the inequality, the feeling of being, I hate the term, but everyone uses it, left behind, marginalised. But somehow we're not making that known, we're not being vocal enough on it, and we're doing incredible work. And I was recently in Boston in Lincolnshire, which I think had the highest leave vote. And tremendous work, community mm. work, and working with East European citizens who feel they are citizens of Lincolnshire, even if some people in Lincolnshire do not feel they are, <laughs> but actually we're not tackling the macro issues. So mm. doing a lot of work to mitigate, but not to bring about the transformational change which is going to be necessary to have a new kind of society and a, and a 
more cohesive community. Mm. Where government policy doesn't work and where where markets fail, the third sector steps in and the third mm. sector has the ability to be flexible and nimble and re- reactive to the most local issues. And in the end, I mean, you know, we at the Joe Cox Foundation, we, we believe that there is a groundswell of people who just want to do good in their communities. Mm. That That's what matters most to them. And they are the ones who are most able to be responsive. But question is the public's perception of the, the charitable sector as well. You know, I mean, politics is held in low regard, but actually some big charities are as well. Many big charities are seen as, a, as an extension of a rather sclerotic government. So charities need to modernise just as much as the next. I, I don't think we can be too self-congratulatory as maybe the point I'm making. Yeah, and, and, and of course it's going to be civil society yeah, and yeah, charities yeah. that pick up the pieces. And therefore, you can't devoid them of this sort of, you know, the, the whole impacts and stuff. And I think that's what we've been really, really keen to articulate to politicians is you can't just say, oh, look, there's a sector over there. It's actually it's ridden through everything you do. I mean, it's interesting as well, because every politician has a favourite charity in their own constituency, don't they? And have they not thought about those impacts and those things when, for example, EU funding gets pulled Mm. and what happens to those constituents and that sort of whole sort of place that 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 organisation has within the heart of their community? Yeah. How can charities play a more prominent role, do you think, in the current Brexit debate and in dealing with the aftermath? I mean, I think one of the, the frustrations has been for us, listen to what we're trying to help you with when you have your legislation. It's not been, we've not, as an alliance, we've not taken an adversarial position. We've tried to give them evidence base on very specific things, whether it might be the charter, it may be on environmental protections, And actually, we've got a body of expertise in all sorts of organisations. And I just think, why would you not want to have them at the table when you're legislating? And I'm sure you must find that equally frustrating, both of you, from your own organisation's perspective, is we're trying to be helpful here. and, and, And we do feel that we have a repository of knowledge, both at a community level, but in a policy area as well use it. I think all dealings with parliamentarians and ministers have to be very specific and very practical. You know, I've never met um, an MP who doesn't actually, you know, to be fair on MPs, you know, who wants to grasp onto a practical solution and we're the ones who are best placed to offer that, those sort of options to convert into policy. I think if you go with a, a sort of abstract sort of you know, moan, it, it'll get us nowhere. You know, I think we need to, to be very specific in our asks. Part of the, the challenge is that politicians, particularly government at the moment, is so absorbed with self-preservation and negotiating or not negotiating a Brexit deal that they are absolutely failing to listen to anybody. You know, if the CBI were around this table, they'd be saying they're not listening to the CBI. Mm. The TUC will be saying the same and the volunteering community and charity sector is in the same place. And I think my plea to government and to opposition would be, however absorbing this is, you've got to be listening to the key stakeholders who form society, the community and the economy. Just as an aside, and I think this is one of the things that Brexit has done, has shone a spotlight into some of the little 
corners in our, or not even corners, but the things that's hidden in our constitution, and some of that is obviously the constitutional settlements with Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And of course, you go and talk to Scotland, and Scotland absolutely knows, and absolutely is talking to its mm. charities. Yeah. And you talk to Mike Russell, and it's <coughs> nothing but delightful, mm. you know, and they get it. And what this is thrown up is, is the dislocation in our constitutional arrangements, and this is, again, to the politicians, be careful of what you wish for, because those who have said, we don't want to break up the union, we don't want to break up the union, are actually doing quite a lot of damage to that. What do you think the principal focus should be for charities after the 29th of March, assuming that is to our departure date? But I think it very much depends if it is the departure date. It seems highly unlikely it will be the departure date, even if a deal is struck in the next few days with the European Union, which seems even more remote, <laughs> because the legislation and the, the planning just can't be in place. Mm. If there's going to be a no deal, there will be a huge amount that the voluntary community and charity sector will have to do very quickly because there will be lots of problems, lack of food, medicines, travel, disruption and so on. And communities feeling very isolated and very marginalised. The government has put the Territorial Army on standby. It hasn't had the same conversations with the voluntary community and charity sector to put us on standby for what may be required. Whatever happens, whether it's no deal, transition period of stuff, I mean, things will never go back to being the same again. And maybe we can use this as a position of strength to go for something better or a more unified sector that can articulate its demands a bit better. I think I do come back to this. If you were in a transition period or whatever is the Shared Prosperity Fund, I mean, they are mm. going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about the funding issue in particular. And if I could say, you know, one priority that I would like to see is a real, very clear, straightforward line of communication between the mm. sector and government, which is an ongoing conversation. It's an in-depth conversation. And really, it's, you know, it's a conversation we should be having right now. Catherine, Jane, John, thank you very much for joining me. Earlier this month, Third Sector editor Andy Hillier visited Tendering in Essex, home to one of the UK's most deprived wards, to find out about the challenges facing the local voluntary sector. I'm Kizzy Keast, and I'm the centre leader for Inter University in I'm Christopher Wetton. I'm CEO of Essex Carers Support. I'm a Pauline man and I work for Tendring Community Transport. Pauline, why don't we start with yeah, you? I, well, um, I, mean, I, I think um, demand for our services yeah. is growing all the time. Yeah. And we're receiving referrals from all social workers, GPs, uh, community agents and individuals that move into this area. The first thing they do is seek out community transport because they've had it in other areas where they've come from and uh, it's vital to them being able to live independently in in their own homes. But found that funding-wise, that is decreasing. It's very difficult to get funding for the services that we provide. Everything is stretched as far as it can be stretched at the moment and we're receiving calls from Essex County Council, the CCG, asking us if we are able to put on more services in areas that are not being covered. But at the moment, we just haven't got the resources to be able to do that. But we are working with them to see if there's any way that we can. Because there's lots of little pockets uh, in Tendring that have no transport links whatsoever. 
and if there is a bus that may run through a couple of times a week, but it's on a set route, so if you're an elderly person that can't get to a bus stop, you, you are completely isolated unless you use a taxi. And to go from here to Colchester, you're looking at 30 to 40 pounds each way, which they can't afford, so they are completely isolated. Where, where, where does your funding mainly come from? We have to generate our own income, which we are really good at, but we, we are, with the permits that we work under, because we're a charity, we can work under certain permits that allows us to employ drivers or volunteers that don't have to have a PSV licence. Mm-hmm. So we work under set permits. So under those permits, we can uh, claim concessionary fares, so people can use their bus passes on our service. So we do get the fares back that way. But that's the only way we can generate income is through hiring our buses, the concessionary fares, or grant funding. When Essex County Council, we haven't had an increase in our grant funding for about six years, and two years ago they actually cut it by fourteen percent. So we had to look at ways of keeping all of our services going and not impacting on our service users, but making cuts. So we had to um, actually get rid of a bus and uh, put the fleet down to get the fleet down to um, eleven buses because obviously we saved money by getting rid of a bus because they do cost a hell of a lot of money to keep on the road. But in another year's time, we may face another cut from Essex County Council. In which case, you know, at the moment we don't know how we're going to be able to swallow that cut. We'd have to source funding elsewhere, but that's getting really difficult because there's lots of voluntary organisations in this area all going for the same pots of money. Mm. So you've got to really stand out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been a real impact and a knock on of the financial climate and some of the commissioning decisions mm. that yes. made. Yes. Which is that particularly because there are more contracts going to larger organisations, some of which are out of county organisations, which means that those of us remaining are competing against each other for funding when we would much rather be working together for the benefit of local people. That's an unfortunate consequence really. Our funding traditionally came from the local authority, that was always grant funding, in recent years they decided that that grant resource would be put into a contracted service which they then allocated to an out-of-county provider. That there are, there are huge knock-ons. It isn't just about the fact that we're all then vying for the same financial resources which have become smaller and smaller and harder and harder to access. But beyond that, not just does it, Im- does it impact on the way that we work together, because of, you know, there is that element of competition, but it, it has eroded that sense of a very local service, that local knowledge and the local expertise, that once it's gone, you just can't replicate, you can't reinvent that. So that's, that's a real shame, I think, and that's a real direct consequence of some of those decisions that have been made. And as you said, once the service is gone, it's very hard to get it, get it back. You can't replace it, can you? Local no, knowledge, that experience is something that yeah. can't be replicated. Yeah. You know, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. You know, and we've seen a reduction in those partner organisations who were part of this area. So over the last couple of years, organisations who had a base here in Tendring have reverted back to Colchester, where they've centralised... You know, so far from being able to just cross the hallway and say to somebody here, 
here's a situation, here's an issue that we'd like to talk through, right, great, here's a, here's a solution, this is what we'll do, that's gone. Kizzy. Well, I've only been here 18 months, so I can't necessarily comment so much on that and change over time. But the stuff you get to say about things being being more local is, is so true, because if it wasn't for the local connections that we've managed to build up here, I don't think our programmes would be as successful as they are. I mean, I, I'm not local. Um, Inter University is a national organisation, but coming in with uh, staff who've grown up locally, building connections with other organisations who can support us is what has allowed us to flourish. If we didn't have the community transport that we use for all of our visits, I would really struggle to offer the opportunities to young people that I offer because I can't, I can't pay the prices that other organisations ask for. And I also can't, you know, I, won't, I wouldn't get a phone call at 7 o'clock going, there's been an accident on the A12, are you sure you still want us today? That, that kind of, do you need us to come earlier? That local understanding is just so valuable to us. And yeah, I think we do feel the kind of, the cuts to the bigger issue. I, you know, work with vulnerable young people. I often have to do referrals to social care and other organisations doesn't always lead me to the outcome that I would want and uh, recently I had a, a young person who we'd made a referral for and they were signposted to some early help but that was in Colchester um, and that is um, not helpful to a young person I've got who has no decent access to transport and so can't get to Colchester to access this other service so then it kind of falls back on us to find actually you know what locally have we got that we could be signposting this young person who really needs some help that's what's really worrying yes, because yeah. what you can see is so much of it falling away that you're sitting thinking about how long do we have it feels like a bit of a seesaw really how long is it before we actually have to wait for it to tip and at that point will there be enough of a community sector left to be able to respond to that or at that point will we be saying right well we're Got no local organisations <laughs> left. It's all down to the big guys. Where are they? Uh, oh, they're not really interested because you know based. they're based in Birmingham. They don't really care about you know Holland on Sea we, or Jaywick or. We will not let that happen. No, but it's but, but that's but that's, the, that's the risk that's, and the anxiety. It is the risk it? and it is the anxiety, mm. and we see it mm. as such. However, mm. as the CBS mm. as CBS tendering, we will not let mm. that happen. It's not what the board will allow. We will gather it up, we will take it on board, as we have done with all the organisations that you've said, who have come to us and said we can't continue. Finally, ahead of International Women's Day on Friday 8th of March, Rebecca Cooney met with Julia Lynch, founder of the Global Girl Project, to discuss the way charities can mark the day. Julia, thank you very much for joining me. Can you tell me a little bit about what Global Girl Project does? Global Girl Project is an international exchange program. So we're a leadership training that's for girls from developing countries. We're really about mobilizing and empowering young women from all over the world, specifically within the developing world, to become leaders and role models in their own country through the use of community development. And is your charity doing anything to mark International Women's Day? Of course. <laughs> Besides me being here right yeah. now. You know, obviously for us, it's really about being able to get as much support as possible, usually financially at this point. So for our program, part of what we do is we, we bring together girls from different countries within the developing world, and they come to Nepal for a five-week leadership training. So it's the mm -hmm. first time that they've ever 
seen a plane, been on a plane, and they traveled to Kathmandu, Nepal, and they spend five weeks there going through a whole leadership curriculum. And the idea is that during that time, they select an issue they feel is important in their own community, and we work with them to develop their very own community project. You know, they are a part of the the third sector as well in, in, in their own right. So they develop their own projects, and when they go home, they implement their projects. So they address many issues of their choosing. Obviously, gender inequality or gender equality is one of the issues that often the girls choose. Part of what they get at the end of that is is a stipend that goes towards their education because in in most of the countries that we partner with, the girls or their parents have to pay for them to go to school. And so we are raising money this International Women's Week to help fund the educational stipends for the girls. So, you know, because we're a super small charity, so every single dollar, pound, yen, rupee, whatever it is, counts. And so we're doing a little campaign for the week where people can go onto our website and donate. It's $40 on average per month for a girl to be able to go to school. Obviously, some countries are more, some countries are less. And what that means is that the girls' parents don't have to worry about it. Sometimes girls get married off in a country like Sierra Leone so that their parents can have the school fees paid for by the husband. But of course, often what happens is that the girls will then get pregnant and drop out of school anyways, right? So really having that educational fees covered for a period of time is a huge, huge, huge benefit in different ways. So that's kind of our campaign for the week. So International Women's Day itself, what impact does it have? You know, as someone working in the women's sector, do you think that it really does anything to actively help? Or is it more about recognition and awareness raising? Well, I mean, I think recognition and awareness raising helps, Mm. right? So for a small charity like us, it is really about that that awareness. I feel like we have a really special story, and obviously a lot of charities do, but what we're doing is something quite different than what's being done. And we really need that opportunity for our story to be heard. And it's not easy as a small charity to be able to find people to tell your story. So having a day kind of gives you an opportunity to do that. Yeah, it's, you know, obviously a day isn't going to be it's not going to solve everything, but it at least takes everybody's attention, even if it's for that 24 hours and says, OK, you know, we need to do something about International Women's Week. What can we do yeah. and look around? And so, I mean, perfect examples. Last year, we really didn't have too much on the table for that week. And this year we have obviously meeting with you. We've been chosen as a recipient charity for a, a women's conference. And I'm going to be speaking on a, on a panel at somewhere I can disclose later. And so really, that's it, it's huge for us. It's ginormous for us. So I really do think it does have an impact in that sort of way. And I think it's also, it's about bringing people together for a, a common interest, a common concern. And, and I really feel just even energetically what happens when a group of people around the world you know, obviously this is international, it's global, come together for a common purpose, a group of, you know, groups of men and women coming together. I really do think that that helps to shift consciousness over time. And, and that's that's really important, especially it's different here, but we work in Nepal, we work in, in Rwanda and Pakistan. And what that means in, in a country like Pakistan is quite different from what that means in a country like the UK. Okay. So there's definitely a 
an impact there for sure. What can charities kind of both in the women's sector and sort of the wider charity sector be doing to acknowledge International Women's Day? And, you know, how do you ensure that these days don't just turn into like a, a big gimmick full of empty promises and it looks good on that day, but doesn't actually do anything? Right, right. Well, I mean, I really believe a lot in, in call to action. Yeah, I'm a very big action person. So we can talk, talk, talk all you want, as you said, but what are we going to do about it? So I think that it, it's important. Charities often, we're, we're so busy just trying to sort of stay above water and and make a difference. So I think that that can be a challenge in its own right to do something separate. But I think charities often do anyways. I think it's really sort of the bigger businesses that have a responsibility to spend that week at least running. You can run different events that men and women are putting on together. You can have panel discussions. You can choose a charity for the week that you're going to have somebody do a fundraiser for, can do a a day of of employees donating a portion of their salary. You can do a million different different things throughout the week. But I really think at the end of the week is almost like a call to action of what are we now going to do with what we've learned or what we've discussed or what we understand and put steps forward for the rest of the year so that we're not just, as you said, sort of spending a week and then forgetting all about it. I mean, is there anything that you think needs to be happening in the charity sector to kind of support women sort of working in the charity sector and beneficiaries sort of the rest of the year? There's many different different issues within the charity sector. Being a sector that is much more dominated by by women, we tend to obviously have much lower pay in mm-hmm. the charity sector than other sectors. I've been a social worker my whole life. And so, you know, definitely experienced that my whole life and the challenges of that. So I really think that in terms of policies, that's really important to look at the equal pay. You know, we don't we don't have anywhere near to equal pay in the UK. Right. So what about the rest of the world? That's really sort of, I think, one of the biggest things that we need to look at is the policies around equal pay, equal hiring, things like maternity leave, things like flexible working, all those sorts of things that that really help to change women's abilities to be equal partners in society and certainly within the charitable sector where we are much more prominent then it's even more important I think obviously always making sure that you're looking at within all the work you do how much work you're actually doing around young women around women and the issues that really affect us is very very important you know but we're obviously all working on our own little little corners of the world but how do we come together to do that thank you very much for joining us and really really interesting we'll be back with another episode next month so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it thank you again to john tizard jane thomas Catherine anderson and julia lynch for joining us to the producer anushka tate for rethink audio and to you for listening